This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. Great to have you with us on the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. We are talking music, meningitis, moggies and more on today's show. I'm delighted to have from Art of Guitar, Rick Flemis in the studio, revealing how many guitars he's got and some of the hidden benefits of learning an instrument. Also marking World Meningitis Day with Dr Zainab from MediClinic City Hospital, plus speaking to mum Julie, whose little one got meningitis earlier this year. So how is she now? We're getting some top tips from an interiors industry insider. How can you make your room look bigger? And what about soundproofing? Addressing eyes with Moorfield Eye Hospital. Dr Salmon on hand to take my questions and yours about the perhaps hidden dangers of screens and do those blue light glasses actually do anything? Plus, it was Dr Sarah Ramsey on hand to answer my questions about pets and vets, but most importantly, taking your text on everything from diet to how often should you cut your cat's nails? Home or away? On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. We are getting musical. We've all heard that taking up a musical instrument in childhood, well, it's a lot easier than when you're older. Is that true? And how can it help them in the long run? Well, according to neuroscientist Nina Krauss, she believes making music matters. It's only through the act of generation and manipulation of sound that music can rewire the brain. One man that can vouch for this is the CEO of Art of Guitar. We've got Rick in the studio. He's been a session player for the likes of Gypsy Kings, Michael Bublé, Jason Derulo. Even live with Jamiroquai and I think has a few stories to tell about Manchester back in the day. Rick, how's it going? Going great. Thanks for having you me. You brought a guitar in today, obviously. How many guitars do you have? Be honest. Uh, personally, around about 50, I think. But in the store, you know, three, four hundred. Oh, my gosh. It's not enough, though. <laughs> it's it's never, never enough. It's never enough. And I just said to your fair, my brother's a drummer and he's got probably, I think he's got at least six or seven drum kits. So... I, I fear, I, I, I feel where you're coming from. When did you first pick up a guitar? Picked up a guitar at university. Uh, was it to impress girls? Corny, corny about <laughs> it. Uh, there's a number of reasons. Can't talk about any of them on here. But <laughs> Now, it was at university and, you know, you were, you were mentioning about is it easier when you were younger? Mm. Um, you know, d- didn't have a teacher at that time and it was just sat there jamming and uh, and picking up tunes really easily. And probably three or four times over the years, over the past 20 years, I've, I've tried to learn again and it definitely gets harder as you go along. I've tried definitely. to learn the guitar twice and failed because it really hurts my fingers. <laughs> but that's, the, you know, the great thing about the guitar is it is difficult, a little bit difficult, but that makes it rewarding, right? Mm-hmm. So if it was too easy, you wouldn't get that satisfaction. So the fact that to even make a good sound and... You know, to progress, it, it, it kind of gives it you back. <laughs> um, Rick, can I ask you, who were your musical heroes growing up? Who were you looking to emulate when you first picked up that guitar? I, uh, I, I listened to very eclectic music growing up and, you know, anything from kind of Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen. So picking oh. up an acoustic guitar and being a folk hero to uh, Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and, you know, wanting to pick up the electric guitar. And I think that that's the great thing about it as an instrument as well. Depending on your mood, depending on the vibe, you can, you know, you can really kind of match it to, to how you feel or to change how you feel as I'm, well. I'm, I'm sure you've seen High Fidelity or read the book, but there's, there's that kind of quote about what came first, the misery or the music. You know, do we listen, exactly. to, do we listen to sad music because 
it's, you know, it's emulating what we're feeling or is it making us miserable? You've got your guitar there. Could you give us some examples, I guess, of the, the power music has to make us feel a certain way? Go on. Examples as in play them. Yeah, definitely. So something that might energise I mean, us, that might make be, us sad. You'd be a bit corny about it. And, they, you know, they're probably the most played acoustic sound from, uh, from Manchester and you... feel like I'm 13 again (laughs) don't make me sing but if you're a bit you know you want to play the national because you're feeling a little bit melancholy about today is one of my favorite songs ever truly the national I could listen to all day long what about some gypsy kings if we take up the mood a bit Rick I, I need a Spanish style <laughs> oh, yeah, guitar. Oh, yeah, right. Maybe, you know, Le- Leonard Cohen, if you finger style and you... not going to cheer you up but if you're in the right mood that's you know it's going to inspire you in absolutely, its own way absolutely absolutely now when it comes to kids learning i think they haven't haven't got the best discipline when it comes to getting the practice in but if they crack it if they've and when you're teaching kids or when the team is working with kids can you certainly identify some that might have more of a natural ability to to music yeah, I mean the the great thing with kids is that they they pick up things so so quickly. Yeah, so I, I would say whatever the the natural talent of your kid, they are going to benefit from learning an instrument. And it's uh, it, you know I was thinking about the differences when I was learning and kids today. For me, it was like if I was out causing trouble, well, I could play a guitar instead, and maybe I wouldn't go out causing as much trouble. Whereas Today, it's kids are, are in too much and they're on the phones, they're on their iPads and you want them to be focusing on something else. And, mm-hmm. you know, as you said, all, all of the studies, the cognitive benefits of the left and the right brain, and they say music itself stimulates the brain, but actually playing music helps connect the left and the right brain and it helps you with problem solving, it helps you be, you know, mathematical, mathematically and as you get older, it delays Alzheimer's and all sorts of things, you know, so there's real, real cognitive benefits there. I feel like there's also a huge amount to be said for getting into that state of flow. And that's something that I think we often don't, you know, and that could, I've speak to chefs all the time and they're like, well, you know, a shift went by and it was six hours and it was just gone. And that because they're doing this thing that they love and they've got a, a talent for a lot of the time. Ah, exactly. But time just exactly. sl- slips away. We, we see that a lot. And, you know, and, and young kids, is, if, they, if you can get kids into music young enough, they pick up what's called perfect pitch, which is just astonishing to see. It's like how kids can perfect... You know, I remember visiting Scotland as a kid and by the end of the first week, I'm speaking with a Scottish accent. You know, you just and you don't even feel that it sounds funny and it obviously does. But you just you just absorb these things. And to watch children like after a couple of lessons and you can play a note and they will tell you whether it's sharp or flat is is incredible You know, to actually see that happen. Do we lose that then as we get older? 
you they they say that you 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 go down in tone over time now I, I, it's hard for me to know because i've always been out of tune but uh <laughs> but you you do actually it, it's been proven even when listening to beethoven's music over the years as he was getting older i mean he he was becoming deaf as well to to compound it but that the if you speed up his composition slightly it actually moves them from being flat into actually being perfectly in tune because of course he wasn't even hearing the music and he, he were, but even mentally you, the the pitch actually moves over time Amazing. but but you can develop it you know as i say i'm uh, i'm learning again for the third or fourth time because out of guitar we've got some incredible tutors that are just super inspirational and and i'm finding that um you know i can play and hear things that i i just couldn't at all a few years ago so it really whatever your age you get benefits from it rick we've had a number of messages mike is saying who does rick think is the greatest guitarist of all time oh, oh, oh. <laughs> i think it's for me it's probably jimmy page because um just the 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 it, it's not that he was the technically the best you know hendrix did things that that Page couldn't do, and Clapton has as well, and, and all of them. But Page, just the you know his feel for the the groove, the vibe, everything, and you know you you put the tunes on now, the Zeppelin songs, and they they they'd be released now, and they'd be they'd yeah. be hits. Transcend so time, absolutely right. So tell us a little bit then of Art of Guitar, because you're in the courtyard, and I. W- walk past you often and be like oh that's beautiful (laughs) tell (laughs) us about tell us about starting that up and I guess who you kind of have in mind as people that are going to come through the door yeah I mean you know art of guitar even in the name it's a kind of celebration of of the beauty of the music and the beauty of the instrument and the the choice of location was very deliberate it it used to be an art gallery so we wanted somewhere that we would be able to really highlight the aesthetics and the the tone of the instrument and it's all glass as you walk in it's more like a manhattan loft Mm -hmm. than than a store in a mall for example and we also have guitars going back to the 1930s 1940s 50s so again the idea of it being feeling like a gallery uh, it's actually really well designed but it it feels as if it's almost kind of thrown together it's very non-corporate deliberately Mm -hmm. it's designed so people can chill out there uh, pick up an instrument and play every every instrument in the store is set up perfectly it's all perfectly in tune all the amplifiers so any combination that somebody wants to pick up and play it's going to sound perfect right off the bat and there's different rooms that you can go in you want to play acoustics you want to play vintage you want to play electrics you go in different rooms for you know we've got memorabilia signed guitars by the beatles eric clapton all sorts of things well actually liam's saying do you ever get guitars in the store that have been owned by famous guitarists and um any expensive numbers in there Mm. yeah plenty of expensive (laughs) and we you know i mentioned even the manchester connection we've had a couple of noel gallagher's guitars through there had a Man City Blue uh, Epiphone that he used to play, which, uh, you know, I would have got that out yesterday to uh, to celebrate the result. <laughs> but um, no, we, uh, we've had Clapton signed guitars, uh, Paul McCartney signed bass from the Beatles, 
Um, we've wow. got quite a few, and we've got an acoustic that Elvis played. So, you know. Uh, and are these for sale? Yeah, they're for sale. How on earth do you put a value on something like that? That's a really hard formula to crack. It, it, it is, and it's driven by demand, and we buy a lot through auctions or private collectors. But some of the guitars are so collectible that they actually have a price index for them. So a, wow. a pre-CBS, so an early 60s Fender, a pre-war Martin from the 1940s, they actually have a, a value index like gold or oil would in terms of what the price for a mint 1959 Les Paul or something is. So on the open market, that has a value. So a lot of what we do as well is also we guarantee the authenticity of mm. the instruments because if you're buying something from the 60s, you want to make sure it's and authentic, right? And also right? if you're buying online, I mean, especially something as tangible as a guitar to be able to go in and touch it and play it. Well, that's, that's and that's the beauty of it. And, and that's why it really is a celebration of the, the beauty and the excitement to, to go in and to pick up a... You know, we've got uh, Gibsons from 1942, 1943. To pick up something like that and think it's 80 years old, you know, the the things that instrument's been through, and then to play a bit of the blues on it, and to uh, you know, and you think who's played that kind of music on it before, or or if it's a you know an official a guitar that Eric Clapton's played and he's signed, and you you know the kind of the the vibe and the it's feel magic. that you get from playing something like that. So. You know, our guitar is a celebration of all of that, that, all of the emotion that comes with it, I guess. And lastly, is there a guitar that's like holy grail, would love to have in the store, love to have in your collection that you've been, you know, checking out sites and Googling every so often? That we haven't got yet. That we haven't got yet. I mean, the, the holy grail is the 1959 Les Paul because that was, you know, Clapton at his peak coming out of the Yardbirds, um, they only made 500 of them. Uh, there's an album called the Beano album because he's reading the Beano on the. Uh, you remember that comic uh, on the on the cover of the album, but and it, and it's called the Woman Tone because of the the specific tone he got. But they've become legendary guitars. There was only 500 ever made, 530 or something like that. And to get a real one, we've we've had a few offers or apparently real ones come How through. Much? They they go for about. Four to five hundred thousand dollars for for a, a mint, you know, example of one of them that, that hasn't had changes. It's got the original pickups. Mm-hmm. It hasn't had a net reset. Those kind of things. But that's why we, you know, we have professionals at the store who authenticate these instruments as well. Obviously, they're not all five hundred thousand dollars. But if you drop fifty, hundred thousand dollars, you need to know it's real. Well, this right? is a great question. And Baha saying, um, for entry level guitarists, do you do lessons? And what would a reasonable price to pay be for a, for a starter guitar? Yeah, we absolutely do. And uh, you know, we. The, I was saying earlier that the difference with us is we do genre-based lessons. So what, what I found, and, I, and I've really done this because it reflects how I learned mm-hmm. and what inspired me. So we will do lessons around Oasis or the blues and, and or finger style. And, I don't want to be yeah. sitting at home playing something that I've got no emotional connection well, to. Well, it, it, it inspires. So the, the, the trick is combining that with people still progressing through the levels mm-hmm. and the grades because that's what kids want to do as well. But they want to do it by learning some Led Zeppelin riffs or, or you know, well, uh, yeah, <laughs> or Prince or, yeah. you know, the, the, those kind of things. And so absolutely. And we, you know, the, the, the stars of tomorrow are the kids today who yeah. haven't picked it up. So absolutely. we really cater for that. 
And for a, for a couple of hundred dirhams, you can get a great... We, we're the exclusive um, outlet for Ed Sheeran's guitars, for example. And Ed's actually positioned his guitars as entry-level guitars, not like the Loudons that are $10,000, the kind of two, $200 or something like that. So they're much more accessible, but they're good enough. If the guitar's not good enough, it's going to be hard to play. So mm-hmm. it needs to be of a, a certain level of quality. Rick, thank you so much for coming in, for sharing some music and lots of enthusiasm. And Mash is going, where is it? Up guitar, the Courtyard. So Courtyard Playhouse, opposite Bounce. Go along, have a great coffee, have a cheese toastie at Boston Lane and uh, go and have a browse. Be inspired. Rick, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, sir. Home or away. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Today is World Meningitis Day and what many don't know is... This potentially deadly disease can kill in a matter of hours and can cause lifelong disabilities. So what do we need to know when there are on average 5 million cases each year, including epidemics of new strains that spread between countries and across the world? Now, we're going to be hearing from Julian McLaughlin soon, one mum who couldn't talk firsthand about her family's experience. But to explain a little bit more first about meningitis, Dr Zaydan Malik is with us, a consultant for paediatric infectious diseases at Maddie Clinic City Hospital. Is it weird to say happy meningitis day? Do you have, do you have posters? <laughs> and cards and things at work? Um, you know, I thought about that and I, and I did think it was a bit odd, but, but I suppose when you're raising awareness, everything's fine. I think, um, in honesty, I'm always a bit eye-rolly about awareness days, in, in truth, because right. like, they can feel a little bit token, but what it does do is start a conversation and what it can do is, as we're going to be hearing from Julie, really help us understand the human element behind, you know, I can say, you know, five million cases per year. And that's kind of meaningless until we hear from people who have lived through the horrors of, you know, a scary situation, a diagnosis and then and then moving through it. But in full honesty, I don't really understand what meningitis is. And I'd love to kind of get your take in hopefully not not too doctorly talk. (laughs) Pretend I'm five years old um, about what it is and what happens in the body. Um, so in, in a very simplistic way, meningitis is inflammation of the, the, the membrane, so to speak, that surrounds the brain and spinal cord. Um, so if you th- can think about the process, this is one of the most important organs of the body. And what's important about the central nervous system is that once those cells die, they don't regenerate. So you kind of, unlike the liver or other areas, you kind of have what you have. Um, so unfortunately, when you have Bacterial meningitis is the most common meningitis globally. So when you have bacteria that are multiplying in the central nervous system, they produce a lot of toxins, they produce a lot of chemicals that obviously damage the brain cells. Um, And on the flip side, the body is trying to counter this infection by launching a very strong inflammatory response. But unfortunately, um, there is collateral damage and there are chemicals produced that damage the brain as well. So so it's a bit of a double whammy situation there. Mm. Can you explain a little bit, I guess, about symptoms, red flags that, you know, all parents, especially for, you know, you being an expert in paediatrics, that we should be tuned into and looking for in our children? So I suppose for for a lot of parents, when you when you do when you ask Google, um, don't ask Google. <laughs> yes, please don't ask Google. Um, it'll give you certain typical signs and symptoms like headache, high fever, um, neck stiffness, or photophobia, which means that if you're looking towards the light, it's it's really harsh and you can't look towards it. But but you know, I want you to 
want everybody to take those symptoms with a pinch of salt because, number one, they're not present in everybody. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of types of meningitis, those are fairly late symptoms. You actually don't want to get to that point. So what I usually explain to the, the medical students and the residents that I teach and the parents is that if the fever comes down and the child is just not looking right, you know, that for me would be a red flag sign to have them checked out. And nobody knows, you know, every, bit, every parent knows their child. So if if I get a parent who brings their kid in and says, the child doesn't look right, you know, you have to believe them. Listen to those instincts. Absolutely. And tell us then a little bit about risk factors. What do you know about causation? Um, So because bacterial meningitis is the most common cause of meningitis globally, um, there are certain bacteria that are able to overpower the host immune system. And unfortunately... um, Infants, young children, their immune systems are not robust, so they're at increased risk. Um, in older people, um, certain having certain risk factors, for example, smokers, that increases the risk because a lot of these meningitis pathogens we harbor them in inside our nose. Okay. Um, and that's how they're spread, by droplet transmission, so being in close contact. So contagious. Absolutely. Highly oh. contagious. You don't, um, And a lot of the, the shedding happens even before people become symptomatic. And, and this is where, um, with certain types of meningitis, it spreads like wildfire. Let's say if you're going for um, annual pilgrimage at Hajj or if you're attending a concert or a, a match. Um, so it is really, really dangerous. And can I ask you, Dr. Zeno, about diagnosis? What tests are you do- doing to ultimately be able to offer an answer and then a treatment plan? What are you looking for? What are you testing for? Um, so the gold standard is um, doing what you call a spinal tap, which is where you put a needle into the back um, and take out um, a sample of the the sp- cerebrospinal fluid or CSF and send it to the lab for culture. Um, But unfortunately, um, if somebody's had a dose of antibiotics before that spinal tap was done, you may not actually grow the bacteria. Um, So we do look at certain parameters. So for example, if there are white cells in the CSF, uh, look at the protein, look at the sugar. Um, And now we have a more advanced kind of a diagnostic um, test called the PCR that looks at about 17 different bacteria and viruses um, that it can test for in the CSF. But however, you still, if you suspect it clinically, you still treat it. Tell us then why that initial recognition, diagnosis, those first 24 hours can be so, so crucial, especially for a little one. Absolutely. And I, and I think that those a diagnosis of bacterial meningitis is, is a parent's worst nightmare and, and also for physicians because um, with the little ones, their symptoms progress so quickly. Um, and especially for the younger infants and children, they can just start off their day looking a bit lethargic, um, nonspecific signs and symptoms. Maybe the fever may not even be that high. So at that stage, it can look like anything, really. It could look like a viral illness that they picked up from the pool, for example. But within the next 24 hours, this child could end up in the ICU. Um, and that's what we really um, don't want to see. Um, and unfortunately, untreated bacterial meningitis has a very high mortality. It's got a mortality of 70%. Um, And even when you're lucky enough to treat within the first 24 hours, there is still about a 10% mortality. Um, And for those children who are lucky enough to survive, 20% are left with intellectual disability, um, brain damage, um, hearing loss. So unfortunately, it's it's a bad, bad um, disease. Can I ask then about 
what would happen in the ICU and what happens after the ICU? What, what, you know, what, what, are you, what and how are you treating? Um, so depending on how sick the child is and depending on whether we need to support the, the child's circulation, blood pressure, are they able to breathe on their own, um, and starting antibiotics right away is really, really important. Um, and often when we get kids who are really, really sick, we don't want to delay antibiotics while waiting to perform a lung, lumbar puncture. Um, so in that situation, that would be one of the few times where you would actually start antibiotics without actually having blood cultures or CSF cultures because we do know that the first dose of antibiotics is crucial. Um, and then treating the infection, obviously, depending on how, how well they respond. But the longer road is, is the, the recovery. You know, once they're out of the hospital, how do you support them? How do you get them into rehab and get them... Uh, and I wanted to ask you about the vaccine as well. Mm-hmm. When we look at the meningitis vaccine, what impact do you think that's had on the health of society overall now in, in 2022? So there are um, a large number of meningitis vaccines. So meningitis is a diagnosis that causes, even among bacteria, there are several different bacteria that cause meningitis. Um, and there are several vaccines that have a very good safety data. They've got an excellent track record in preventing severe infections and deaths. Um, and And if, for example, you look at um, the UAE, so back in 1987, um, there were 16 cases of meningitis per 100,000 population, which is a fair number. And you fast forward that 20 years to the to 2008, and that number had dropped to one wow. per 100,000. Wow. And and I, th- I think if we have new data, we would probably see an even smaller number. So that impact has just been through vaccination. Dr. Zainab Malik with us, the consultant there at uh, City Hospital, Madi Clinic City Hospital, as a consultant paediatric infectious diseases home or away on afternoons with helen farmer we are marking world meningitis day just been in conversation there with dr zainab malik consultant for pediatric infectious diseases at maddie clinic city hospital and she'll be joining us again to answer some of the questions we've had on the text line but one woman that can talk firsthand about her family's experience of meningitis joining us now julian mclaughlin her little girl vienna was just 16 months old when they had that diagnosis and Thank you for coming in and I think reliving what must have been an absolutely terrifying time, Julie. Can you tell us a little bit about when you first realised that something wasn't right? So um, she was absolutely fine on the evening before and in the morning she woke up with a a high fever, um, which she never really had fevers. um, And when I tried to give her medication, she vomited. And then that morning she was just lethargic, sleepy, and I was like, there's, there's something wrong. At that point, that's all there was, just lethargicness and um, the fever. Um, so I took her straight away to, to A&E um, because I knew she just, it, it just wasn't like her at all. And then what what were they doing? I mean, Dr. Sainan, they're talking about doing, you know, tests and what, what, was, what was happening around you? So... Um, when I first took her, um, there was no other signs and symptoms, so the doctor actually did sent me away because there was there was no rash or anything at that point. Uh, the rash didn't appear until um, around six pm that evening, and I did the the rash test straight away um, and went straight to A and E, and they confirmed it straight away and said you need to to go to a hospital with ICU, um, and off I went straight away. It was 
uh, it was very scary. Yes, I mm-hmm. must have. I can't even imagine because you're so vulnerable as a parent, you know. But as as Zainab said, we you know in yourself when something's not right. You know, a doctor can look at a child and look at those symptoms, but you've got the context, you've got that life experience of knowing what their little personality's like all the time and knowing what their energy levels are like. So, did she go into ICU and how long was she there for? Uh, that evening. So, as I said, the fever started at eight a.m. She was in ICU by ten p.m. that evening. Mm. It was it was so fast. Um, the rash appeared, I said, about six o'clock. Um, I was in the hospital and by 9.30 she was head to toe. It was so fast. You, I'm sure, as we're saying, don't Google, must have been straight on the internet and you know, becoming an expert really fast in something really scary. Yeah. What were your fears and what were the doctors saying at that point, Julie? Uh, well, my, I've got a very close friend who's a, a paediatric nurse, so I was straight away with her um, telling her everything and she said... Um, get them to give the antibiotics straight away. You know, there's no point waiting. Um, so that was my first thing, asking them, can you just give it to her? Can you just give it to her? Um, so at that time, it was still, you know, COVID. So they, they were keen to do a COVID test before we could be admitted anywhere. So again, that was another uh, another trauma trauma adding to it because I just knew that she needed, needed care quickly mm-hmm. and, and fast. And how long were you in hospital with her for? Uh, two weeks. Oh two my weeks. gosh. The most, the longest two weeks of, of my life. And I was obviously, I, didn't leave, didn't leave that hospital for two weeks. Uh, I was sharing the bed with her. My husband was backwards and forwards with changes of clothes and foods. And um, yeah, it was it was the longest two weeks ever. Dr. Zainab talking earlier about how if left untreated or not treated quick enough and obviously even very severe cases, long term um, issues with health. And I had, I had a message here saying my brother developed meningitis at the age of four and a half months. He was left with severe learning impairment and epilepsy. It's been a life-changing event for my parents, siblings and I, and I wish we had vaccines 53 years ago. So how is her health now? Now she's great. Absolutely fought, fought back. Um, I, I'm so lucky and I think obviously it's, it's key that we got there, you know, within a few hours. It was, you know, within 12, 15 hours of, of her starting to feel unwell. Um, I think if, you know, if we'd left it any later, you know, the consequences could have been far different. Um you know, the fear the whole time, we were getting lots of different tests done uh, over those two weeks because there was complications all the time and different things happening. So we were fearful. Um, she didn't walk for two weeks. She was in a bed. She was bed bound. Uh, so I was worrying, you know, how was she going to be? Is she going to be able to walk again and all these sorts of things? But uh, luckily, um, you know, she's 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 great. She's great um, and what about any advice for any parents listening today? I mean, the big my big takeaway here is about trusting your instincts. What would you add to that? De- definitely trust your gut a hundred percent, and also get the vaccine. Um, you know, I, I I thought she'd had it, but that was my negligence as a parent. You know, not looking into it and and not realizing exactly what vaccine she'd had. Um, but definitely get the vaccine is my advice. And Dr. Nam, we've got time for one quick question. Hamid's been in touch saying, read the vaccine. Um, when do you need a booster? Good question. Um, so at at this time, there's not a, um, a lot of strong data for booster vaccines. I think we're talking specifically about the meningococcal vaccine mm-hmm. here. Um, so it can be given, um, there, are, there are different types that can be given as early as two months of age. Um, if they're given before the second birthday, kids usually need more than one dose. After the second birthday, there's one dose. Um, as, of, as of now, there's not a whole 
a lot of role for boosters. However, the CDC does recommend that if there's somebody who's going to be on an ongoing risk, let's say you've been vaccinated five years later going um, to camp or um, attending Hajj uh, mm-hmm. in Saudi where there is a likelihood of exposure, there's no harm in going ahead and getting a booster. Both, thank you so much for coming in and, as I said, shining a much-needed light on something I think is so many parents' worst nightmare. And I'm, I'm genuinely so thrilled that she's in great health now. And thank you for sharing your story, Julie. Really do appreciate it. And Dr Zainab, as I said, um, thank you. Um, a real expert there on this topic and all, indeed, paediatric infectious disease. And you can be found at the City Clinic there, City Hospital Mediclinic. Um, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us if there's any topics that you would like us to look at. Perhaps there's been a situation in your family or in your friendship group that you feel more people need to know about. We're very much on hand. And we talk health on Tuesdays, but also Wednesdays as well, marking World Meningitis Day on Dubai I 103.8. Home or away? On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. So not so much home and away, but definitely home on the show today. Nema Sadani from Interior Design Consultants in Design is in the studio, taking my questions and yours about creating a beautiful home. You've been in the region for more than 20 years now, so... I think we've got lots to lots to learn from you. Can I ask you how and why did you get interior design? What was what was the kind of the driving force for this industry? Uh, thank you for having me, Alan. You're welcome. Um, I have been always like uh, I had an artistic uh, part, so like drawing. I also draw cartoons. <laughs> yes, and. Um, I think what I like about interior design and why I chose it, it's very wild as far as uh, uh, options are concerned. Uh, So you can deal uh, with material, with Mm -hmm. textures, with fabric. Uh, You have like an infinity of possibilities and which makes it really always innovative. And you don't get bored of it. Uh, this this was my main concern. And, and I think that's, that must be so interesting to be getting different briefs from different clients and thinking about different types of homes or areas. And as you're saying, kind of trends and challenges as well. I'm, I mean, I love, I'm very lucky. I really love my home. But I think it's so important that you feel like your home is your sanctuary. That's somewhere that you feel really safe and happy. I agree 100%. Like I always believe that uh, the client themselves are the best designers. Mm-hmm. And we as interior designers, we have to uh, like help them get out what they have in their heads because sometimes they cannot translate this. Yeah, and bring it to so, life. So uh, it's very important to stress that when you do a space, uh, you're doing it for the the people using the space. It's mm-hmm. not for you. That's interesting. So, so this is this is very important because you have some interior designers that uh, force their style, which I feel is is really not fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, it should be like especially at uh, at the home. It has to carry your identity. I mean the identity of the client. This yeah. is very very important. It's collaborative, but you're then giving them the language to help them realize what they want. Exactly. Can I ask you, and I want you to be honest, are there any design features or trends or something you see in someone's house and you think, no, 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 huge pet peeve, absolutely hate it? I got uh, a client one time, uh, like the interior request was so busy and a lot of gold and it was like, you know, uh, it's like hurting to the eye. So, <laughs> Too much. So, yes, that was maybe one of the rare projects I did 
but I kind of with regret, if mm-hmm. you want. And, this is not uh, going in the yes, portfolio. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I want to pick your brains on a couple of, I guess, style problems that a lot of people face. And, you know, whether it is your own home or a rental home. So some quick fixes. How can you make a room look bigger? Okay, so uh, definitely natural lighting is very important. Uh, also lighting in general is very important. Make sure you don't cluster the furniture. This is very important. Use light colors, not dark colors. Um, uh, mirrors helps a lot, but you have to know where to use your mirrors. This way it doesn't look like a, like a Luna Park or something. You know? <laughs> yeah, or like a <laughs> not, bathroom. Not, or, not yeah. too many mirrors, yes. Okay. Um, what else can I say? Um, like uh, the smart use of space, uh, how to you display your furniture properly. And proportions, I guess, Definitely. of that furniture. What about, what about making a room look lighter? We're in an old villa that's, I mean, it's I think it's 25 years old and they did a really nice renovation. It's all white, <laughs> but I still feel like the windows are too small for the property. Any uh, advice? Um in that case, you have to go for alternative light, which is the the lighting. Uh, and uh, now you have like uh, infinity of options for uh, uh, lights, uh, fittings that can match uh, the sunlight or the natural light. So like emulates natural light rather than looking like a light source. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. If you have any possibility to widen the windows, it will be great. But I think you're no. in a rental villa. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think you, you are going there. I can't yeah. face the work. Yes. What about making a room look more expensive? Look, uh, you can, like it, we always say, it's not if you have expensive furniture, the look looks expensive. This is not the, mm-hmm. the key for it. Uh, it's the matter of mix and match. And the proper selection of material. Like you have some material which really impose uh, wood, for example, marble. They uh, have a, pre- a luxury, a very luxurious presence. So uh, that I, I believe the choice, the marriage of material, the combination of all of these together uh, with the color scheme, which gives the the um, the room looks uh, look more luxurious. And also luxury is very relative from. That's uh, true. one person to another like yeah. uh, f- for me if, if something uh, a room is simple this it might be luxurious to my mind <laughs> that's yeah. it. and i think everyone thinks they have good taste <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit like everyone thinks they've got a good sense of humor um and lastly a kind of unusual request that you've had over the years at InDesign. I read an article over the weekend talking about how, how many pet owners are having custom kitchens with you know, an inbuilt dog bed or a drawer that pulls out and it's got their bowls on, you know, flush to the ground. And I just was curious if you, what, what kind of trends you're seeing. Uh, uh, like the, the, the one I can recall uh, the latest, uh, I had a, a local uh, client. He, he asked me for a very big room behind the villa and uh, first he didn't tell me what was that for then it turned out uh, this guy he has a hobby of uh, birds uh, raising birds and he uh, wanted to do a, like a huge cage for his birds there but believe me it was like bigger than the villa itself wow. it was amazing and then uh, i asked him about this i was very curious and he started telling me about the, the the breeds and the birds and how it was so interesting really so that that was a little bit uh the first time i ventured into something like this yeah a message here um saying any advice for soundproofing rooms well i can tell you i grew up with a younger brother who 
was a drummer, is a drummer. <laughs> and my dad, bless him, turned one a little room next to our kitchen into his drum room. And he did not successfully soundproof it. I've still got proper PTSD whenever I hear a metronome. What should we have been doing for soundproofing? Okay, so soundproofing, the material uh, which is used in the... There are uh, material which uh, absorbs the sounds, the noise, and some which reflects. Like glass is very bad. Uh, Porcelain tiles, they make echo, which is worse for the acoustic. You have fabric... You have wood, you have carpet, all of these absorbs, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, nowadays, you have also like uh, panels, acoustic panels, which looks uh, very nice uh, aesthetically, which you can stick on the wall, for example. Is it like what we've got around us now in the yes, studio? Yes, exactly. <laughs> We're in the best uh, place to, to showcase that, uh, which absorbs a lot the, the sound. Uh, something is very important also. If you're doing a partition between two rooms, go all the way up to the concrete ceiling. Because when you leave the gap, this is where the voice, the, the noise tra- um, travel from one room to another. So you have to go all the way, close it. And in the partition itself, you can put like rock wool, which is also uh, sound absorbent. And there are acoustic material, but uh, they're not uh, very affordable. Like, they're, they're expensive. Yeah. Uh, if you want to get like a very professional uh, acoustic, you can have that. You can have like total silence if you want. Yeah. Otherwise, you're getting some egg boxes, which is what my dad did. Egg boxes are very important. (laughs) Yes, we're coming my next uh, tip for this. Thank you so much for your time today. I know you're incredibly busy with the team at InDesign. If anyone who is wanting to avail of your consultancy services and find out more, what's the best way of getting in touch with you? Uh, I think if they go to our Instagram at uh, InDesignJLT, uh, or our website, uh, indesign.me, uh, www.indesign.me. And some great photos there of all the things you've been up to. Nima, thank you so, so much for your time. Thank you, A Helen. real, real pleasure. Your eye health on eye. With Moorfields Eye Hospital Dubai. I care for you and your children. Moorfields, driven by your vision. We do use them every day, except for when we sleep. We are talking eyes this next half hour. And next week is actually World Sight Day, but... Are we taking enough care of them? Is it something we're taking for granted? And how could we improve our eye health today and for the future? Joining us now, Dr. Salman Waka. He is a consultant, ophthalmic surgeon at Moorfields Eye Hospital and on hand to answer those questions. Dr. Salman, how are you? Hello, Helen. Good afternoon. Um, very well, thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on your show today. Thank, thank you. you very much well, for buckle, inviting me. Buckle up for a busy one, sir, because we've had lots of questions for you, and I've got I've got a, a few as well. As I sit here wearing my reading glasses, that I'm wearing more and more every single day. Um, can I ask you though, what's coming into clinic, and, and and do you notice any trends, you know, seasonally or in certain age groups at certain times? What's keeping you busy? Well, Helen, there's, there's, a, there's a few things that keep us busy. I mean, there's um, one of the things that we see very commonly these days, particularly as we're coming towards the tail end of the of the summers, is uh, a dry eyes. Um, you know, we're in air conditioning most of the time um, during the summer months and indeed mostly throughout the year. Um, and our eyes can get very dry because the, the environment, the air that we're in is dry most of the time. Um, add to that the fact that we're on computer screens a lot, um, and it's a little known fact, but when we're working on a computer screen, we don't blink as often as we should, and that can also cause a bit of dryness on the surface of the eyes. So to be honest, one of the commonest things that we see um, are dry eyes, and then we can move on to more complex things like cataract, uh, glaucoma, retinal disorders, um, but mostly in the summer months we see a lot of patients with dry eyes. Interesting and um, please forgive my ignorance is that not just a case of putting some drops in <laughs> or is that a bit more complicated what do you tend to prescribe and advise? 
Uh, no, absolutely true. I mean, it is simply a case of just putting some drops in, getting some hydration and lubrication into the eye just to get some comfort. But also one of the kind of most important advice I give these days is that if you're working on a computer screen for a long period of time, then every 20 minutes or so, just look away into the distance for 20 seconds um, and blink a few times. Just a small little break throughout the day will really ease off the dryness and give you a lot of comfort. It's known as a 20-20-20 rule. Dr. Salman, I'm really nervous to ask this question because I don't think I'm going to like the answer. But with you and your colleagues, what changes have you noticed over the last few years where screen usage has exponentially increased, whether that is looking at phones or tablets? You, you know, mentioned computers there, screens. Is it too early to talk about the impact or, or are you already noticing things? Um, so there's actually, that's, that's a really good question, Helen, because there has been a lot of research over the last many years, even before we became so accustomed to using screens so frequently. And what we found through this research is that using a screen in itself is not harmful in any way, but it can have indirect uh, impacts, which can be mitigated by very simple measures. So for example, like I said, if you just take the small break regularly, then you won't notice dryness of your eyes so much. The other thing is if you're constantly looking at a screen up close throughout the day, let's say for eight to 10 hours, which Mm -hmm. can be the case in most workplaces and indeed in schools as well, um, then the eye muscles can get kind of locked into a near position as well. So later on, at the end of the day, if you're looking in the distance, you might find, well, things are a little bit more blurred than they were first thing at the start of the day. And that simply means that the muscles in the eyes um, need time to relax. But if you're taking a regular break throughout the day, then you can mitigate this as well. The screen itself is not harmful um, in itself. So I think that's really important to know that by using a computer screen, we're not harming our eyes. Mm -hmm. But with some simple lifestyle modification measures, we can make the whole process more comfortable for ourselves. Dr. Salman, I'm going to go to the text line now, if you don't mind. Um, Anil is asking about the blue light blocking glasses, um, talking there about screen usage. I'm seeing all sorts of different companies, um, you know, some... You know, proper eyewear companies and some more fashion looking at blocking this blue light. Where do you stand on them? Is, is there any data that supports the use or are people just kind of jumping on a bandwagon? That, that also is a great question. Um, so when we talk about blue light, what happens is that the blue light itself is not harmful to our eyes in any way. So from an eye specialist perspective, I would say that um, blue light is not harmful in any way and I have no concerns with regards to it. However, we do know that it can have a neuroexcitatory effect, which basically means that it can just generally make you feel more anxious or more excited because of the effect the blue light itself has on how the visual pathway integrates uh, with, with your brain. Um, and that's also why it's recommended that, you know, last thing before you go to sleep, don't be on your mobile phones, don't be on a computer I screen. Know. However, <laughs> easier said than done. I know. And, and, and that's the reason for it. It's basically because it has an excitatory um, effect on your brain. So that is completely separate to the eyes. But for the eyes themselves, actually, blue light has no harmful impacts whatsoever. Your eye health on eye. With Moorfields Eye Hospital Dubai. World leading experts in eye care. Moorfields. Driven by your vision. Dr. Salman Wakaz joining us now. He's a consultant ophthalmic surgeon at Moorfields Eye Hospital here to answer any questions you might have on the usual channels. And Dr. Salman, unsurprisingly, a very busy text line for you, sir. And I think this is really interesting because a lot of people take their eye health for granted until something goes wrong. And are you often not really sure where to go 
if something does feel wrong, you know, do you go to your GP? Do you go straight to an expert such as yourself? So I'm really glad we're able to offer some insights this afternoon. Um, a message here, I'm asking about side effects to laser eye surgery. Um, are you able to kind of outline that and maybe even talk about who would be a good candidate for laser eye surgery? Thank you, Helen. Yes, um, so eye surgery, of course, is a very, very commonly performed procedure these days. Um, and it's been an, an, a very established procedure for many, many years now. So the safety profile is very high, but it's very, very important to go and see a appropriate specialist for it, to have a full assessment to make sure it's safe to have the laser treatment, and also to decide what kind of laser would give um, you the best outcome. Um, but overall, the risk profile is very low, less okay. than 1%. Um, and also, if there are any risks, they can easily be dealt with post-operatively. But by and, by and large, most people are absolutely suitable for laser treatments, but you just need to see an appropriate specialist for it and have all the right tests and checks in advance. I would also like to add, this is not the time to be looking for um, a cheapy deal. <laughs> These are your eyes. Go somewhere where they know what they're doing. And I'm, I was, yeah, this is not the buy one, get one free time, folks. Um, Seema has been in touch saying, I've worn glasses since I was 10 and my husband since he was a teenager. Does that mean our children may also end up having weak eyesight from an early age? I'm interested in this because I wear reading glasses and only recently, but my husband has been very, very, very um, short-sighted from a very young age. So I'm praying the kids take after me. What does the data say or what have you seen in clinic, Dr. Salman? Uh, yes, Alan. So that is a very, very kind of topical discussion at the moment. So I'm very glad that you brought it up. Um, with regards to parents wearing glasses and will kids need glasses afterwards, there is, of course, a chance that genetically they might. Um, but that chance is low. Other than that, what we found is that with increasing indoor times and increasing screen times, the need for glasses in children has risen worldwide over the last five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. But we've also discovered that if you can balance uh, indoor time and screen time with appropriate outdoor time and exposure to ambient light, then this risk can be largely reduced. So that's really the thrust of the discussion these days is how to balance the indoor and screen time against being outdoors, being exposed to ambient light and allowing your eyes to grow in a healthy manner. Great advice. Dr. Salman, we've run out of time. I have run out of questions. We'd love to have you back and explore these topics further if you'd be happy to come on and can tear yourself away from your patients. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, sir. My pleasure, Helen. Thank, Thank you so you. much for having me. And you can find Dr. Salman there. He's a consultant ophthalmic surgeon at Moorfields Eye Hospital. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, groundbreaking science, life-changing nutrition. We're with you through until five o'clock today, answering your questions about all things animals. Joining us live is Dr. Sarah Ramsey from Amsakeem Veterinary Centre. Dr. Sarah, remind us, what is the current menagerie at home? So the current count at the moment is one dog um, and we're now up to six cats. <laughs> <laughs> you know I like a name. <laughs> okay, so we brought Snowy, um, our uh, Bedlington Whippet, oh. cross over from the UK. She's a little rescue dog. And we also brought Dexter and Atticus, who are two cats. Uh, Dexter's now 16. Oh, um, and then we had a little Arabian Mao community cat who came and joined us. And then he brought his sister <laughs> and a couple of other friends. So <laughs> now three, of them are, yeah, three of them are kind of inside, outside cats. But um, three are in all the time. So. What was your first pet? <laughs> my first pet was a gorgeous uh, black Labrador called Shelley that oh. my parents rescued. Um, she should have been a gun dog, but she had a hip 
broken as a puppy. And um, a sort of pioneering um, operation was done at the RVC, um, actually the Royal Vet College in London, um, that enabled her to walk and my parents rescued her. And oh, everything. lovely. So, yeah. Well, there's been some disturbing trends out of the UK um, from... We're not going to name any names, but let's say some some well-known celebrities who have taken on pets and are ear-cropping. For anyone that's not familiar with this term and ultimately what happens to the animal and for the so-called reasons, can you explain it for us? Yeah, so ear-cropping is actually illegal in the UK. So... um, Any sort of surgery on a dog um, in the UK and many other countries is an act of veterinary surgery. So only needs to be performed by veterinary surgeons. And it's actually banned because it is a mutilation. So the ears are cropped to enable them to to stand up. So normally a lot of these breeds are Dobermans or um, bull breeds who have floppy ears. And they are cut so they stand up and the dog looks more aggressive. So the the downside of this is that it's a very painful, horrible operation to have done. Uh, They're done on puppies. Um, Quite often it'll go wrong. They'll be infected. It has no medical benefit whatsoever. It's basically, you know, doing a cosmetic procedure on a small child for aesthetic reasons. So um, the BVA, the British Veterinary Association, has got a big campaign at the moment, Flop Not Crop, trying to educate people. A lot of dogs are being imported from countries where it isn't illegal. And they're so-called being called rescues and things like that. Mm. So there, there probably will be legislation passed soon in the UK that, that actually bans imports. So, um, you know, I think it's it's something that probably should be discussed and people should should understand that it, it, it provides no improvement on, on, you know, sort of ear health or, or reduces infections or that's all nonsense. It's purely cosmetic. And when you say cosmetic, what what are people's kind of so-called motivations for this? Is it to do with, you saying about being aggressive there, is it a bit like mm. my dog's harder than your dog? Yeah, it's sort of obviously, you know, when dogs are alert and they're looking, they'll have their ears up and obviously some breeds have more erect ears than others. So it just makes the dog look, you know, look alert and and, uh, potentially more aggressive. The actual problem is, is that when dogs are communicating with each other, it's now getting false messages across. So um, a lot of those dogs that have their ears cropped or their tails cropped can't communicate to other dogs properly. So then you'll have a lot more behaviour problems. It's interesting you mentioned tails there because we've had (laughs) spaniels growing up who, you know, traditionally being working dogs have had their tails docked. Ours never did because they were the opposite of working dogs. They were lazy, lazy dogs. What is the latest on docking tails? So again, in England, um, you can still dock working dogs' tails. Um, In Scotland, um, and I think Wales as well, they have banned even docking of of working dogs because there's many more studies being shown it doesn't reduce tail injury very much. I think the jury is out. There's definitely, you know, a lot of vets out there who would still uh, do it. There's very, very strict rules of it being done in timing-wise and the dogs have to be microchipped. You have to prove they're going to be working dogs. Um, but again, I think, you know, I, I love to see, um, uh, you know, sort of the, one of the traditionally docked, you know, sort of dogs like a Doberman with a big long tail wagging around. I know, I know. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan. In the studio to answer my questions, but most importantly yours, Dr. Sarah Ramsey from the Umsakim Veterinary Centre. And I hope you had your coffee before the show, Sarah, because it's a busy, busy one. Let's go to the text line. And as I said, we've had lots of questions around feeding and food. Um, Callie's saying, I've got a two-year-old Cavachon girl called Pixie looking to switch her food. She seems to get a lot of hydration from wet food, but I hate the smell. Any tips for transitioning to dry? I hate the smell too. Yes, yeah, that tends to be a lot smellier. Um, But the... 
the best thing is just to do it really slowly. So um, any quick changes in diet are very likely to cause some rather spectacular results at mm. the other end. Mm. So the best thing is to try and do it. Minimum would be over five days, ideally over sort of one to two weeks. So I would start with, you know, sort of, 80% of your original food and just 20% of the new food for a couple of days and then, you know, drop it down by 10% sort of each time. The quickest way, to, you know, if you wanted to do it just over five days would be 75 and then 50, 25. Get okay, your calculator sort of out, Kelly. Yeah. And you would do this by weight? <laughs> by weight, ideally. So, yeah, sort of, you know, really... Um, you can either obviously get advice from your vet as to what your, your pet's ideal weight should be. And then um, you can use the back of the packets. Um, every patient's individual. So again, do lots of like regular weigh-ins as well. So you make sure that you're feeding the right amount. Because you might find as well moving on to the dry food, there is a few more calories in that. So we'd obviously don't want to, to, okay. to put on any weight if we don't um, need to. Mess- message that from Dan saying, can dogs eat scrambled eggs? Because mine just has. <laughs> yes, they can. Ideally, not with too much milk in because that might upset the tummy. It's all right, Dan. Relax. It's fine. <laughs> Um, and Chris saying, um, hi both. My dog is showing signs of stiffness, has an area of spinal pain, not wanting to run or jump around. She's only four. Would fish oil help? Um, it could do. You need to be very careful with some supplements. Um, certain fish oils will be too high um, and unbalanced in the omega-3 and omega-6. So you'll actually increase inflammation. So you need to look very carefully at the type of supplement that you're that you're using. Definitely with backs, I would really advise a, a checkup with the vet because this might not be just stiffness. We could have a, a bulging disc or something like that. Um, so some imaging or something might be warranted. And then, you know, a sort of a good um, yeah, sort of supplement program. They might need painkillers, might need some physio or hydro or something else as well. I love the idea of dogs having hydrotherapy. Just like oh, having it's brilliant. a little paddle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a quick question from Lorraine saying, how often should I cut my cat's nails, please? Surely it depends on how active they are with their nails. Exactly. And, and whether they're an indoor or an outdoor cat. I would advise that outdoor cats never have their nails clipped because they need them for running and climbing and getting away and defending themselves. Indoor cats, obviously, if they're not using um, scratching posts and actually the older they get, they don't tend to shed the sides of the nails as much so they can get very overgrown and grow into the pads. So probably I would say about every eight weeks it would be the sort of average time. Thank you. Hope that helps, Lorraine. You're listening to Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, where the number one ingredient is always high-quality salmon, lamb, turkey and chicken. We're running lots of questions on diet for Dr Sarah Ramsey. She's joining us from Umskeen Veterinary Centre. So if this is something that's on your mind, it could be health, it could be behavioural, we are very much here to help. Um, a message here about dog diet from Dinesh saying there's only one type of food our old man can eat because of intolerance to protein. And I think he's just bored of it. I've been adding a bit of gravy to make it smell nicer. Um, I've microwaved it thinking that make it a bit more pal- palatable, but he wants treats. I give him chicken with his tablets in it, but too much meat and it goes straight through. Through. Will he just eat when he's hungry? Poor old man. Oh, yes. I think it, um, first of all, I definitely would sort of just make sure that he's had a, a general check recently and maybe some bloods run. Quite often, appetite will drop off um, if, uh, you know, sort of our kidneys aren't working as well or our liver. So sometimes that needs to be looked at as well. Sometimes um, trying a novel protein, um, so uh, something that you haven't tried before, so something like maybe camel or venison, a very small amount, something they haven't sort of had before, they'll sometimes be able to tolerate. 
sometimes uh, something like egg protein can sometimes be a little bit easier to to digest um so i think really i would do everything sort of very very slowly and very gradually um you've kind of done all of the sort of main tricks of of warming up and uh, you know adding something that's a little bit tasty um sometimes we will use a tiny little bit of marmite in some water as well just that yeasty smell will sometimes encourage animals to eat you don't want to put too much because it's a little bit salty but sometimes that will get them sometimes hand feeding you know sometimes they can have problems with their mouths that are not very visible so so sometimes getting a good check over can highlight another reason why they're maybe not liking that food as much they don't have the same kind of taste buds that we do so they don't really get bored with food if you're in the wild you'd eat the same thing because it's the same animals that you're catching all the time um so they don't really need the same variety that we do but um but sometimes um yeah definitely it would be worth getting them checked over and just making sure there's nothing else that's contributing to the to the decreasing appetite great advice and hopefully some ideas and inspiration on the food front dinesh um staying with food a message here saying i'm struggling to get my dog to take his medication it gets sped out or the food I put it in is ignored. Do you have any foolproof tips for getting my hound to take his tablets? Can I crush it? Much appreciated. Yeah, so again, depends on the medication. Some can be crushed, some can't. Um, so again, you need to check with the vet as to what medication um, they're on. Um, I love um, using, you know, those really cheap frankfurters in tins <laughs> or cans. Yeah. Um, so we'll chop those into tiny little bits and hide medication in the middle of that and that's that's sometimes quite a foolproof way of getting medication into patients obviously I've been giving tablets to animals for about 30 years so I'm quite good at just popping them down the hatch and my dog will only take them if I pop them right to the back of her throat so there are some good YouTube um, sort of videos of how to do that very safely Um, obviously that's not suitable for all patients and definitely don't want anybody to get bitten Um, Sometimes something like liver paste, um, yeah, that, you know, specific dog stuff that you can like, get. Bit, and, bit of pate. Yeah, so yeah, well, maybe go for the liver paste that's, that's designed for, <laughs> for animals rather than... But I have had patients uh, use a pate. can be a little bit fatty though. But um, yeah, sort of sometimes, yeah, um, that sort of really cheap um, Primula cheese as well because there's actually not a lot of calories in that um, to sort of coat it. Um, again, I'll sometimes use Marmite for cats because they tend to like it more than dogs do. A little bit of that on it. Um, and really, yeah, I, I tend to try and avoid putting it in food or, or putting it just a very small amount because it will tend to put them off wanting okay. to eat it. So. You know all the tricks. You're asking the right person here. <laughs> let's let's turn our attention to some cats. Um, Lisa um, has been doing some amazing work helping with cat colonies in, in the UAE. And she's asking, how can I treat ringworm in stray cats if they're not very friendly? So there are lots of oral medications on the market now that are very safe uh, to use from you know, very young kittens. Um, working the, with the RSPCA and the Cats Protection in the UK have done some great studies um, on using um, um, dr- uh, certain oral drugs. Um, so that would probably be the way that I would say because it's quite palatable and could be put in food. They would need to individually dose them though. So that's that's oh, the sort tricky. of hardest bit. So you'd need an idea of their weight um, and things. So um, yeah, if she has a, a vet that she works with with the colony who could go and inspect them and give an idea on weights and size that might be some something like some and a follow-up message from Lisa saying we've got a double adoption day this weekend uh, for the stray dog center can you help us out by mentioning it so 900 plus dogs can find oh, their gosh. forever from there's an awful lot around right now i need to it's some heartbreaking things on social media right now um not a reason to unfollow. I think it's really important that we're confronted by this, to be honest, and, and do what we can to share and help. Um, staying with cats, this might be the best name of the afternoon. Sarah's been such saying, my cat Scratchy <laughs> cries nonstop to go outside. He's been fixed. He got outside once and now doesn't want to be inside at all. Is there anything I can do to make him happier inside? 
Yeah, so it's just trying to um, sort of provide all the things that you would want to be doing outside, inside. So you want places where he can hide, places where he can go up high. Um, I think if you look at some of the... Um, cat cafes that are around Dubai they actually have those pretty pretty nicely set up where there's lots of walking platforms and um and places that the cats can go off and be on their own but also if they want to sort of interact the running wheels are quite popular with some cats as well this is um, brand new to me we had a message a while ago asking about yeah running wheels Mm -hmm. and treadmills for cats I was like this isn't possible quick straight on the google oh yeah yeah, and then, so some cats will really like that. So play tunnels, um, sort of, yeah, lots of playing. Um, I w- there's been a study showing uh, that laser pens are not good to, for cats now because they can't, they actually physically want to catch something. So they mm. actually can become quite frustrated and quite stressed if you use a toy that they can't physically actually get hold of. So um, uh, ribbon, you know, sort of toys or feather toys or something like that would be good. Um, grooming and things as well, that, that is, a, is a real bonding experience between cat and cat owner if they like it. Um, Otherwise, so, it's a scratchy yeah, it experience. It could be rather scratchy. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's just trying to look at, at sort of doing that. Obviously, some people will build catios, or you can have like you know cat proof uh, the garden, so they can actually have a safe space to go outside, but also not get out and get into trouble. Oh yeah, let us know a little bit more. I also want to know why. I, mean, I can guess why the cat's called scratchy, but yeah, as some evidence on the WhatsApp would be great. Coming back to nutrition, Dr. Saro, what are some of the most kind of common myths or misconceptions you feel like us as people might have about what our animals, our pets, eat that you know perhaps we just need a bit more education about? I think obviously quite a hot topic at the moment is that um, grain-free is superior to other foods. Um, I think that. Um, is more of a a sort of a fashion trend. I think there's lots of studies out there now showing that grains can actually be very beneficial and are actually a very good source of energy. Um, And I think sort of people go, oh, but you look at the back of packets and, and, you know, the sort of where they, you know, that'll be really high up and that's really you know sort of that's too much it's not enough protein as if, it, as if it's like a filler yes and and it's definitely not it's actually providing nutrition and things and actually if we look at our own diet we'll actually see that that's quite rich in in carbohydrate and mm-hmm. things as well so i think it's you know it's it's a very emotive topic food and you know definitely us as as humans you know we want to feed our animals something that that they enjoy and that's a good quality and things like that so it's about doing your research and and getting your your information from reliable sources and, and things as well. So, um, you know, I think there's there's one of probably the other big myth is, is that vets are in, you know, sort of get kickbacks from from nutrition companies to promote their food. Um, no, we, we do have a lot of nutrition training at vet schools and, uh, you know, sort of want to, you know, promote good quality diets to, mm. to things and, and whether that is, you know, veterinary diets, commercial diets, you know, raw feeding, home cooked. I have a lot of, of um, well, clients that's... where I will arrange home cooked diets for them with nutritionists so that we can, you know, if they won't tolerate commercial foods and, and, and uh, are better on that. But again, that needs nutritional input. That's exactly what I wanted to ask, because we, we have had a number of messages in the past about, you know, adopting a home cooked regime. Mm-hmm. The difficulty with that is, as you're saying, you know, there's so much research and development into you know, the food you find at the vets or you find yeah. at the shop. That making sure that it is purely balanced for that age, mm-hmm. the build, the species, the, you know, whatever stage of life they're in. So it's interesting there that there are people that can help you put that together if that's an avenue yeah. you want or need to go down. Definitely. And, and you know, it's it's very easy to do wrong and they, you can have mm. catastrophic, you know, um, consequences to that. You know, we have seen patients at the clinic who've been on 
grain-free diets or home-cooked diets who have developed a dilated cardiomyopathy, which is, um, you know, again, there's been more and more studies in certain breeds of dogs that there is a big link to that or, or feeding high levels of legumes. So, so again, it, it needs to be done, you know, very scientifically and, and can work brilliantly. I've had some patients do wonderfully well on home-cooked diets and, and they've been much better. You know, we've either got them to the right weight or we've had the right kind of stool consistency. We've had nice coats, um, but it's got to be done in a scientific way. Yes, it's not about Dr. Google, it's about Dr. Sarah. Um, And what about treats as well? Our dogs are little beggars. They are terrible for it. And... In, in honesty, we use treats, you know, much like, like many dogs, they're, they're really motivated by food. So whether it is getting them in the kitchen so we can put the baby gate up at bedtime or it's, um, you know, wh- whatever it might be. Are we, and we often just give a bit of kibble, um, which isn't much of a treat, but mm-hmm. it's something. But what, what do you tend to recommend as a frequent treat if you are using food as a bit of a training yeah, tool. if you're using it as a training tool, um, it needs to be really high reward. So that would be something that's very high quality. I quite like freeze dried meat and things like that. So um, particularly when we rescued our dog, she's not food motivated at all. So we were having to use really, really <laughs> sort of like one thing, something that would be absolutely irresistible to get her to do what you know to, to to learn the things that we wanted her to learn. So so yeah, definitely, I'm not a no treats kind of person. But again, you've got to look at what they've had over the whole day. Mm-hmm. Particularly if you've got a dog that you want to lose weight. So so again, treats are fine, but you've got to look at what you're feeding and how much because, you know, there'll be things where we sort of think, well, it's only a little bit of, of a biscuit or a, or a dental treat, but actually that's equivalent for a little dog to having two donuts if it was me. And also so. what other people in the family are doing because yes. yep. I give them treats. I'm pretty sure my husband's giving them yep. the same, if not more. Dr. Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. We've run out of time. We we. We could have done another hour of questions, but we'd love to have you back. And anyone that did send in a message today will absolutely put it across because Pets and Pets is with you live every single Wednesday afternoon from four o'clock. Where can people find you, Dr. Sarah, if they're looking for some one-on-one advice or want to explore some of the things we've been discussing today? So I'm one of the great team at Umsakim Veterinary Centre um, in Umsakim on the Alwassel Road. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.